Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 204, Snottingham. This show is ad-free due to member support. And being ad-free is so much more than just not having to hear about Audible and yet another show. It also means that the only people we have to keep happy are you. We don't have to worry that Squarespace is pulling their ads because we described Charles the Bald as a f stick. Instead, we're free to call it how we see it and call f sticks what they are. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Richard, David, and Elizabeth for signing up already. At the end of the last episode, the gates of Jorvik had opened, and the great heathen army marched forth. They were headed south, to the kingdom of Mercia. Mercia makes sense for the Northmen. The leaders of the great army had already bolstered their northern border through their puppet king, Egbert. East Anglia had been brought to heel and economically devastated, so they were unlikely to muster any sort of resistance in the future. And Greater Wessex had proven to be a paper tiger. Despite the fact that they had been a dominant power in the southern kingdoms, the warbands of Wessex were unable to move the Northmen even out of Thanet, nor were they capable of seeking retribution for the raids of Kent, despite the fact that those raids were a violation of the peace that had been purchased through the earlier Danegeld. So these West Saxons were clearly nothing to worry about. For the Northmen, it's likely that they were primarily concerned with just two kingdoms in Britain. The first was Gwyneth. There is something about Wales that appears to have been uniquely suited to fighting the Northmen. Previous Scandinavian campaigns had failed to even get past the Isle of Anglesey. And the King of Gwyneth, Rodri Mawr, or Rodri the Great, as well as his sons, were probably a serious concern for the great heathen army. But luckily, the new lands held by the Danes didn't share a direct border with those strange western men who spoke in an alien language. So, ultimately, the army didn't really need to worry all that much about them, at least not in the short term, especially if they could create a buffer state, similar to what they did with Bernicia and King Egbert. Consequently, this leads us to the other imminent threat to Danish power in Britain, Mercia. Now, Mercia of 868 was a far cry from the kingdom that had been in the days of Penda and Athelbald and Offa but it still could be quite a problem for the fledgling kingdom of York. Remember all of the battlefields where we've seen Mercia stand triumphant? Think about how effective they've been at building a great southern hegemony under their personal command. And think about how often we've seen Mercia sheltering ousted nobles, even ousted Northumbrian nobles, as they prepared a counterstrike. So Mercia had trouble written all over it. And we can bet that any branches of the Northumbrian dynasties that managed to survive the taking of Jorvik, and of course the betrayal of King Egbert, would have been a bit ticked off in looking for some strike back. And Mercia would often shelter rival scions, even Northumbrian scions back when they were at war with Northumbria. So with that sort of history in mind, what do you think the chances are that Northumbrian nobles would be heading south for support? I mean, that's where I would go and I'd probably start immediately asking for support and frame it as self-preservation, 
saying things like, If you don't call your levies and help me reclaim the north, your kingdom could be next. And besides, it's not going to be that big of a deal because once we march in and my people see me at the head of this army, we'll be greeted as liberators. Or, you know, something like that. Now, unfortunately for us, looking back at these events as history, all of this happened outside of Wessex, which means we don't have records of what was going on up in the north during this critical period. So who knows what was really happening? But personally, that's what I would be doing. And if I was King Ivor or Ubba or whoever else was leading the great heathen army, that would be what I'd be worrying about. I'd be looking to turn Mercia into a puppet kingdom that could act as a buffer kingdom between me and East Anglia, and between me and Wessex, and between me and Wales. Now as a bonus, taking Mercia would also give my army an easy road into any other southern kingdoms. One of the major advantages that Penda and the other Mercian kings had was this central position of their kingdom. And through it, they were able to create vast hegemonies. And I wouldn't be surprised if the great army was looking to replicate that success. Whatever the reason for this march, the records tell us that the great army headed south, and eventually it reached Nottingham. Only at that time, it wasn't called Nottingham. It had the far superior name of Snottingham. And that roughly translates to the town held by the kin of Snot. And yes, this means that at some point after the Anglo-Saxon migration, there was a powerful Anglo-Saxon named Snot who held this land, and he, as well as his family, became so mighty that the region was named after them, the Snottingas. And just let that sink in. If the Normans hadn't been so lazy and ditched the S after taking over a couple centuries later, we would have the story of Robin Hood and his arch-rival, the Sheriff of Snottingham. We were that close. Also, not for nothing, but Snot is easily the second best name in all of Anglo-Saxon history. Possibly even better than Stuff. I think it's a dead heat between Stuff and Snot. But silly names aside, marching to Nottingham was a really big deal. Take a moment and look at a map and see where Nottingham lies. Do you see what I'm talking about? That's deep inside Mercian territory. The Great Army wasn't in a border territory like Sheffield or Manchester. They were going to Nottingham, a settlement that was less than a day's march from the ancient seat of the kings of Mercia, Tamworth. This was at the heart of Mercian power, and it housed one of the major royal residences within the Midland Kingdom. Nottingham was itself a major royal possession, and it was likely a significant administrative center for the region and housed some of the largest buildings in Anglo-Saxon Britain during this time. It's hard for me to even wrap my head around what this would have been like for the Mercians. I mean, if this was an alien invasion, the ships just settled over Paris or London or Brussels. The show of power in this move is simply astounding. From the record, it appears that this attack had taken the Mercians completely by surprise. We don't read of any pitched battles or drawn-out campaigns. Rather, it seems that the speed and audacity of the Danes had fully paid off, and they took the settlement of Snottingham with little to no resistance. Before King Burgred of Mercia knew what was happening, he had lost a central settlement within his kingdom. And the Northmen didn't miss a step. 
Having taken the town, they immediately went about fortifying it against any future attacks. Now it was getting late in the year and the campaigning season was coming to a close, but they must have known that it was still quite likely that King Burgred would raise his warbands and attack them, so they needed to be ready, and they took the existing fortifications of Snottingham and upgraded them. Additionally, the leaders of the Great Army were gifted at propaganda, and we're going to see that later on as well, and they knew how to create narratives. Honestly, this is one of the things that I love about this era, because you have the two primary forces at war, the Anglo-Saxons under West Saxon leadership and the Danes, and they were not just fighting a physical war, but also a mental one. So when the Northmen selected Snottingham, it was probably carefully chosen for morale purposes. And later on, we will see the Danes seizing lands that were revered both for spiritual purposes and political ones. And once they held them, they would turn them into military positions. And the reason for that is clear. By taking spiritual and political positions and turning them into Danish possessions, it was a demonstration to everybody that not only were the leaders of the Anglo-Saxons weak, but so was their god. And taking Snottingham fit well within that practice. So, short of walking into King Burgred's bedroom and kicking him out, I'm not sure what they could have done that would have been more provocative than this. The taking of the town was a dick move, and it was a huge problem for King Burgred of Mercia. But Burgred wasn't going to take this lying down. He rushed to his other holdings and began calling up the Ferd, the Anglo-Saxon militia. He would need to call every military-age man who was capable of standing up and holding a spear. Now, thankfully, he wasn't saddled with the internal problems of Northumbria, so it appears that most of the nobles and their levies came when they were called. However, Burgred wasn't going to take any chances. On the advice of his council, he also sent messengers to his brother-in-law, King Athelred of Wessex and asked for the support of the West Saxons in ousting these invaders from his lands. Now this request put King Athelred into a tough spot. The eastern portion of his kingdom had recently been raided by these same pirates. And to make matters worse, two of the best military minds of Wessex, the formidable Bishop Aelstan of Sherborne, who had experience defeating Vikinger armies, and Elderman Ainwolf of Somerset, who had a similarly bloodied sword, were both dead, as was King Athelred's experienced older brother, King Athelbert. There was a dearth of experienced military leaders in Wessex. And with that in mind, engaging the great army, especially considering that they had been so successful, having recently defeated and claimed Northumbria, well, it would have been a nerve-wracking decision. Raising his forces to fight in a foreign war could possibly expose him to a coup at home if it didn't go well, and these guys seem to be really good at fighting. Moreover, the nobles and the Ferd weren't eager to fight, not even for West Saxon lands, but to ask them to risk their lives for Mercian lands? That's a big ask. I mean, those people had long been the enemies of Wessex. And besides, they were weird. Their customs were strange, and the way they spoke just seemed wrong. So if King Athelred asked his men to raise their were-odds and furds and march into Mercia on behalf of his brother-in-law, that was a big gamble that he'd be making. 
However, to do nothing was an enormous risk as well. If Mercia fell, how long would it be before those same Northmen marched into Winchester, just like they had done in Snottingham? If they didn't unite and fight now, how long would it be before all of the South was under Danish rule? And where would that leave Athelred, or his sons, or his brother Alfred, or any of his extended family? Athelred just really didn't have much of a choice. He would have to fight. And Asser tells us that King Athelred and Prince Alfred raised an immense army from every part of Wessex and quickly marched to Snottingham, quote, single-mindedly seeking battle, end quote. Perhaps if they defeated this force and killed the Viking leaders, Burgred, Athelred, and Alfred can end this menace in a single battle. I imagine that Athelred and Alfred saw themselves as carrying on the tradition of their father and grandfather, Athelwolf and Egbert, who were glorious battle-hardened leaders. This was their chance to prove themselves worthy of the House of Wessex. But those ambitions and those hopes would have been dashed the moment that they caught sight of Snottingham. The Northmen had completed their fortifications, and they were now safely encamped behind a large ditch and an earthen rampart. Based upon other archaeological sites that we found where the Great Army wintered, like, for example, their position in Repton, which we will be talking about in later episodes, they likely ensured that their defenses backed up against the River Trent. That would have allowed for a quick escape in their longboats if something went horribly wrong. It also would have made it easier for them to get resupplied and reinforced by water, while also making it more difficult for the Mercians to encircle them. So overall, it would be a good spot to be. They also likely incorporated the buildings and pre-existing defenses into their bulwarks. Everything we've seen of their military movements suggests that they were quick to exploit any advantage. And there's no reason to think that they wouldn't have done that here. Now, protecting a settlement with a ditch and an earthen barrier, maybe with a few buildings here and there, sounds pretty small to us today. But consider the sheer scale of the Danish army that waited behind those defenses. And the fact that the vast majority of the combined West Saxon Mercian forces would have just been untrained, undisciplined farmers with spears. Members of the Ferd would have to scramble across the muddy ditch while holding their spear and trying to avoid any of the great heathen army's arrows or rocks. And then they'd have to try and scale the rampart just so they could plop down, muddied and exhausted, into a sea of hardened Vikinger warriors. The ditch and embankment might as well have been the walls of Troy. There's no way that the Anglo-Saxon forces could take it without substantial losses. And the disappointment that King Athelred and Prince Alfred must have felt would have been palpable. Rather than fighting the army that had recently destroyed the Northumbrians, they just found a fortified town that was bristling with enemy activity. And they would have known instantly that there was no chance of luring Ivor, Ubba, Halfdan, or any of the rest of them to come out from their walls and meet the combined West Saxon Mercian forces. They weren't stupid. They're opportunistic, and so everyone would have known that the Northmen were going to sit rather comfortably behind their walls and probably taunt the Anglo-Saxons that were arraying out in front of them. Any hopes of winning glory on the field of battle were dashed 
Similarly, the idea that they could spend a couple days marching, one day of fighting, and then a couple days marching home was shattered. Instead, they were faced with a long siege. And winter was coming. The days were shortening, the nights were lengthening, and the rains were coming. Unlike the Northmen, Kings Athelred and Burgred weren't cozy inside Snottingham. They were out in the field, and so were their men. Their soggy and probably quite grumpy men. Their only hope for victory would lie in starving them out. But consider how long it must have taken King Burgred to gather his war bands, and how long it would have taken King Athelred to do the same and march to join his brother-in-law. It must have been quite a while, because it afforded the great army enough time to fortify their position. And do you really think that would be all they were doing? If they were hunkering down for a siege, don't you think they'd be looking towards long-term needs? Things like preparing food stocks? Snottingham was a sizable property, and it was also a royal vill, so there were probably already well-stocked larders. But there were also farms in the area that could likely be raided and harvested in preparation for the winter. And as a bonus, by harvesting or just destroying the nearby resources, they would have the added benefit of making it more difficult for any opposing Anglo-Saxon forces to feed themselves. It's what I would do, and I'm just some dude who likes to read this stuff. I'm sure that the guy who established himself as the King of Dublin, and the warriors who dominated Northumbria, surely they would have planned for something like this. And frankly, they probably have a better plan than the one that I'm imagining. But the point is that while Burgred and Athelred were out there making deals and raising levies, I'm confident that the Northmen were preparing for a long siege. So that's the situation that King Athelred and King Burgred faced. And all the Anglo-Saxons could do now is spread their forces out, surround the settlement as best as they can, and hope that the Northmen starve first. And incredibly, that appears to have been the plan. The combined Mercian and West Saxon armies settled down to starve the Great Ethan army out of Snottingham. But the Anglo-Saxons were probably far more likely to starve before the Northmen. And there was another problem that's less obvious to us today, but it would have been on the front of everyone's mind at this point in history. The Anglo-Saxon forces were mostly farmers. The Ferd was useful for bolstering the numbers of the army for quick battles. And if you look at the timing of most fights, that's exactly how the Ferd was used. You raise the Ferd, march to the battlefield, fight it out, and then march home. And then the surviving members of the Ferd could get back to the important business of tending the fields and caring for the livestock. But these farmers can't work in the fields if they're busy being camped outside of Snottingham. Consequently, just by the way that they set up the Ferd system, the Anglo-Saxons created a situation where the rules for sieging were flipped on their head. It wasn't the Northmen who were in danger of starving. It was the Anglo-Saxons, and they needed a quick resolution of this situation far more than the Danish invaders did. If they couldn't get home, there'd be no planting and no harvest, and thus, there would be famine. And not just in the short term either, but also for the following year. This was a serious problem, and it was on the minds of probably everybody. And as a result, it wasn't long before the Anglo-Saxon men started going missing. Crops needed to be tended after all. And why would you risk your family starving to death just so this Mercian noble could get his town back? 
Kings Burgred and Athelred really had a problem on their hands with this. And I'm sure that King Athelred was already looking towards packing up and going home. I mean, this was a debacle, and it could potentially endanger his reign if his elder men started growing discontent. And once they start going hungry, that would be a near certainty. So King Burgred had to do something. And it's possible that one of the things he did to solidify his position with the West Saxons was arrange a marriage between Prince Alfred and the daughter of an elderman named Athelred Musil of Mercia. His daughter's name was Aelswith, and her mother was part of an ancient royal line of Mercia and a direct descendant of King Conewulf of Mercia. Now, as you might remember from earlier cultural episodes, within Mercia, the lineage of your wife was a key aspect of your legitimacy to the throne. So by marrying Aelswith, Alfred and any children he had would suddenly have claims to the throne of Mercia. Now that probably didn't matter all that much at the time to the nobles because King Burgred was sitting on the throne with Alfred's sister, Queen Athelswith. And Alfred was just a prince, he wasn't the king. But still, arranging such a high-profile marriage looks to me to be a present from King Burgred to his brother-in-law, either thanking him for his help or begging him to stay for a bit longer. But whatever the case, it was clear that this siege wasn't going to work out. Even if the Anglo-Saxon army held fast and starved out the Danes, their reward would be a year of famine thanks to the lack of farmers in the fields. So rather than risking that, King Burgred came to terms with the Northmen. Once again, a Danegeld would be paid in exchange for the Northmen leaving the kingdom. We don't have details, but based on other Danegelds, this probably involved a great deal of money, some hostages, and maybe some supplies in exchange for a promise to leave the kingdom and a promise of friendship between the two people. And with that, it was over. The Ferd was disbanded and headed back to the fields. The Danes went back to York. And some of the nobles went to the royal estate at Sutton Courtenay in Berkshire and attended the wedding of Alfred and Aylesworth. But man, what a letdown. And you can imagine this had a significant impact on the way that Alfred viewed military matters. They got all dressed up. They irritated their eldermen by calling the Ferd. They abandoned their fields, spent God knows how long away from home, risked injury, illness, and death. And they probably endangered the morale of their entire kingdoms. And for what? To pay a bunch of money to the Danes to get them to go back to York? What a mess 868 had turned out to be. But looking back at things, 868 was pretty good in comparison to what was coming in 869. Because Ivor the Boneless wanted the South. And he was going to do what he had to to get it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question 1. When the great heathen army arrived at Thanet in 864 or 865, King Athelbert attempted to head off disaster by sending them a tribute. 
This type of tribute became so common that it was given a name. What was it? Question two. Soon thereafter, the great army overran Eastern Kent anyway, and even looted Canterbury. The sources tell us that King Athelbert died, and luckily, there were still two sons of Athelwolf left. But how many were there originally? How many sons did old King Athelwolf have at first? Question three. What was a Watanagamot? Question four. King Athelred wanted to rule over Greater Wessex, meaning Wessex and Kent, and Prince Alfred could disrupt that, so allegedly an agreement was made between them regarding inheritance, and Athelred made a concession to his brother. What was that concession? Question 5. In 865, the Great Army left Wessex and invaded East Anglia. There, they extracted another Danegeld and then wintered there. The Danegeld consisted of gold, silver, food, drink, and one other notable thing. What else did the East Anglians have to provide to the occupying Danes? Question 6. As the Great Army stayed in East Anglia, even more ships arrived bringing warriors to their banner. And in 866, they attacked Northumbria. Northumbria was an obvious target. Because of what? What made Northumbria ripe for conquest? Question 7. Once this town was known as Ivarakum. Later, it would be called Jorvik by the Vikings. And finally, York by the English. But what did the Anglo-Saxons call it? Question 8. The sagas claim that King Alla of Northumbria was given the Blood Red Eagle. But in the Chronicle, how did King Alla and King Osbert die? Question 9. Snottingham. You love it, and I love it. But what does it mean? Question 10. The combined armies of Mercia and Wessex gathered to meet the great heathen army at Snottingham. And what did King Burgred of Mercia do next? All right, let's see how you did. Question 1. When the great heathen army arrived at Thanet in 864 or 865, King Athelbert attempted to head off disaster by sending them a tribute. This type of tribute became so common that it was given a name. What was it? Danegeld. Question 2. Soon thereafter, the great army overran eastern Kent anyway, and even looted Canterbury. The sources tell us that King Athelbert died, and luckily, there were still two sons of Athelwolf left. But how many were there originally? How many sons did old King Athelwolf have at first? He had five. Question three. What was a Watanagamot? It was a great council of nobles and church leaders, much like the Mercian councils of Show and the old synods. Question four. King Athelred wanted to rule over Greater Wessex, meaning Wessex and Kent, and Prince Alfred could disrupt that, so allegedly an agreement was made between them regarding inheritance, and Athelred made a concession to his brother. What was that concession? 
Alfred would inherit the whole kingdom upon Athelred's death, thus passing over any potential sons that Athelred might have. Question 5. In 865, the Great Army left Wessex and invaded East Anglia. There, they extracted another Danegeld and then wintered there. The Danegeld consisted of gold, silver, food, drink, and one other notable thing. What else did the East Anglians have to provide to the occupying Danes? Horses. Question 6. As the Great Army stayed in East Anglia, even more ships arrived bringing warriors to their banner. And in 866, they attacked Northumbria. Northumbria was an obvious target. Because of what? What made Northumbria ripe for conquest? They were in the middle of a long and bloody civil war. Question 7. Once this town was known as Ibarakum. Later, it would be called Jorvik by the Vikings. And finally, York by the English. But what did the Anglo-Saxons call it? Ethelwich. Question 8. The sagas claim that King Alla of Northumbria was given the Blood Red Eagle. But in the Chronicle, how did King Alla and King Osbert die? They died fighting at Jorvik, along with a large chunk of the Northumbrian army. Question 9. Snottingham. You love it, and I love it. But what does it mean? The town held by the kin of Snot. Question 10. The combined armies of Mercia and Wessex gathered to meet the great heathen army at Snottingham. And what did King Burgred of Mercia do next? He paid a Danegeld without ever fighting. Okay, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.